Hey everyone, before we get started, I just wanted to let you know that we're actively looking for more stories and more people to interview. So if you know anyone that has any type of experience or works in an outdoor recovery setting, you can email us at stayalive@alert30.com. That's stayalive@alert30.com. Thank you and enjoy the show. And at that point, I started doing the mental gymnastics to go from, you know, happy dappy in the wilderness to there is a serious situation here. Welcome to the Stay Alive Podcast, a show where we explore stories and education on wilderness survival. Today, our guest is Gary McCaleb, a veteran of almost two decades as a forester, wild lion firefighter, EMT, and a lawyer. Gary was hiking with his family when he came across a situation that needed emergency medical evacuation. Pleased to be with you today. I'm Gary McCaleb. I'm an older guy with a bit of a different background. Six years in the Navy, about a dozen years of emergency medical uh, services, both as a federal forester and a volunteer at a couple of different agencies. And then, oddly enough, for the last 20 years or so, I've done law and religious liberties, civil liberties. But as we'll be discussing today, found myself back in the EMS world recently on a hike up in Colorado. Well, thanks for coming on, Gary. Uh, so I actually came across your story on Facebook and was able to read enough into it. And it was it was a very detailed account. I just had a few questions and I was wondering if you could take us back to that account and uh, and really dive into what happened that day. That's right. Uh, something good happened from Facebook, actually. I posted a, an account of this rescue we got involved with up in the wilderness in the San Juan Mountains of Colorado. Uh, I have twin daughters uh, in midlife, and they like to haul me out and uh, make me hike, just like I used to make them hike. And we've done that for three years now. I've gone out to uh, the Lizard Head, which is relatively close to us here in northern Arizona, and enjoy a few days in the wilderness. This year got interesting when we did stumble into a young lady who was actually in rather severe distress from a medical condition. So my understanding is that she did not have any injuries that were sustained in the wilderness. Rather, this was so a, she had already had like a previous condition. condition. It wasn't when anything that was, I guess, sustained lady, out from being in the wilderness. It was undetected on her own situation, exacerbated or, or pushed to crisis levels by the elevation and the exertion. Uh, she and her boyfriend are technical mountain climbers. They're out in the Colorado mountains almost every weekend. A lady in her late 20s, and really about the last person you'd expect needing emergency evacuation in the wilderness for a medical reason. A couple years ago, we bumped into a young man whose girlfriend had been very severely injured in the same area, ironically. We expect trauma, and I think that was one of the surprises to me as I was walking with my two daughters and a couple grandsons in a beautiful Colorado day, and all of a sudden it's life or death, but it's not trauma, falling rocks, and that kind of stuff. It's a medical condition that came out of nowhere at 4 a.m., and five hours later when we encountered this lady, she was uh, rapidly degrading in terms of her uh, vitals. So at what point did you become involved? Can you take me through the, the, well, the beginning I, of the scenario? I became involved, involved on a curving trail coming into Navajo Lake up in the San Juan. So we had camped up on a nearby and we're just doing day hikes in the area, partly because our grandsons are fairly young yet, not up to serious backpacking. 
So I'm just bebopping along at the back of the, the family herd, enjoying the beautiful Colorado sunshine. That particular area is a massive scree slope with a little bit of scrubby crumholes, the altitude dwarfed trees there. And what started it is my one daughter turning to me with a rather urgent look on her face saying, Dad, there's some hikers here and they need an SOS. And at that point, I started doing the mental gymnastics to go from, you know, happy dappy in the wilderness to there is a serious situation here. And as I quickly saw, it was something that was frankly life or death. The doctors after the evacuation said that that timely air evac that we were able to assist with was probably decisive in the lady being here. So I have a map pulled up on Navajo Lake, the area that you were close to, and I'm not seeing any nearby cities or towns. So you guys were really far out there. Correct. We're uh, several miles from Telluride. We're almost in the middle of the uh, Lizardhead Wilderness there. Uh, logically enough, the lake is in the bottom of a massive Colorado Valley, and there is no cell service. And I don't know, the, the trail is fairly rough. Um, probably six, eight miles out to the trailhead. And from my own experience, uh, I was a, a medical unit leader and a line EMT on forest fires for a number of years. Evacuating somebody on the ground by hand is, <laughs> it's nasty business. It's extremely difficult and you better figure on six to eight people with relief if you're actually going to do that. So we're looking at hours for a ground evac. And, uh, you know, there's just that moment and, and anybody who's dealt with emergency services, I think is all familiar with the way time kind of collapses on you and all of a sudden everything's moving fast and slow at the same time. And I remember just looking at my Garmin 66i. That was the first time I was relying only on Garmin for my emergency communications. And looking at that SOS button, thinking, I hope this thing works. And of course, happily, it did work. I think the entire evacuation was extremely well handled. And we managed to get that lady off the ground and on her way to Grand Junction Hospital about as quickly as would have been humanly possible in that scenario. So that 66i Garmin had a satellite feature, correct? Correct. It's a full-feature GPS unit that has the in-read door that works through the uh, Iridium satellite network. Uh, previously, I carried one of those uh, ACR personal locator beacons, which works off a different network. It's basically the same thing as a an emergency distress beacon from a downed aircraft. So they know somebody's in trouble, but they don't know what. They only know, know something serious is going on, so they have to send somebody out to find out. The great advantage of Garmin is it is a two-way communicator via text on the satellite. So within about the first 10 minutes, I was able to establish communications with the International Rescue Coordination Center that's hooked into the Garmin system and give them a brief rundown. on Being in a valley and then relying on a, uh, on a type of radio system would probably be a huge disadvantage as opposed to having a satellite communication. Well, it, it, with, it is with a spot. When you're set. in the world, even if you have a high-quality radio, and back when I was civil service, I used to carry my King handheld with me everywhere I went. And in most parts of the West, I knew the frequencies. I could hit the federal repeaters and talk to people. But even then, I don't think in that valley I would have been hitting any Forest Service radio with me. 
I guarantee a cell wasn't working. You have to go just about a mile and a half, two miles uphill to uh, get even text messages out. And of course, you can't text 911. So that would have been text my wife and hope that she's paying attention to her messages that day. Um, having a satellite device was absolutely critical here. One of the things that surprised me, this occurred right on the trail coming out of Navajo Lake, the young lady was trying to self-evacuate. They, When we met them, they just realized that she is not walking any farther. She was literally ready to collapse at that point. I talked to about a dozen passing hikers and as far as I could tell, because pretty quickly I got curious and started asking, all of them were just gonna rely on their cell phone. None of them had a satellite device with them. And I guess to be clear and candid, if I hadn't had a satellite device with me and been able to trigger that rescue, the lady probably would have died. I think she was probably down to her last hour when we got her out of there, given the decline she showed over the space of a couple of hours. So absolutely critical. I have to say that both my daughters carry the mini Garmin's that are much more awkward to text on, but they still have texting capability and they have the SOS capability. And then I had a bit more full-featured one, uh, the 66i. But either that or at least the personal locator beacon-type device, if you're going to be out of cell phone contact, you better think about how you're going to get help either for yourself or another she must have been very fortunate to, to have run into they you. They were That's very right. fortunate. And, and <laughs> I mean, sure. there's all sorts of things here that are, they're emotional. I mean, that was an extremely intense, almost three hours between the time we triggered the SOS and the time she moved off. And uh, I mean, you go over these things. Anybody who's dealt with emergency medical situations will replay the tape, sometimes almost endlessly. I think all of us have those few runs that never, ever, really leave our memory. So yeah, it, it's emotionally intense and, and both of them have stayed in touch with us and been profoundly great. Uh, but it's just neat. It's neat to be there when somebody's in need. And in all candor, we didn't do that much. There's only so much you can do in the wilderness for this kind of situation. Uh, but we were able to initiate the rescue. We were able to inform the incoming uh, helicopter as to the patient's condition, give them our location, and then, of course, we assisted with the evacuation. We did the best we could to stabilize her, which is really just basic treatment for shock. Obviously, in a podcast like this, we don't want to go into medical details of the patient, but she was, say, exhibiting all the signs of a severe internal bleed, was kind of the way she presented. And, you know, on a scree field in the middle of nowhere, you're not going to get too diagnostic on things. You just best you can with what you got. But fortunately, it was enough in this case. She is alive, she's recovering, and actually she and her boyfriend have started uh, hiking again, which is great news. Yeah, so that, for anyone that doesn't know what a, a scree field is, it's a, uh, it's like a large collection of those, those broken rock fragments that you see coming out of uh, exactly. mountainsides, cliffs. Of anything from small gravel up to granite up in that country. Uh, it, it's the stuff you see at Timberline. And one of the issues we had early on, uh, first off, the search and rescue were absolutely phenomenal. Dolores County Search and Rescue. I talked to the captain later who's extremely familiar with the area, obviously, and he 
Even before he started calling people for a ground evacuation, he ordered up the helicopter just based on gut feeling. And I'm really glad he did. But one of the early decisions we made as the helicopter came in, uh, surveyed the area, they did not attempt to land where we were at, even though they saw us, they landed up by the lake where it was safer and sent the EMTs down to evaluate the possibility of landing. They showed up, the guys from Classic Air Medical out of Moab, Utah. You know, they said, we think our pilot can get here. We had an area about the size of a queen bed that is maybe a five, eight percent slope to it. That was the flattest ground in the area. That, that whole mountainside was worse. So they decided to try and land the helicopter about 20, 30 feet away from us. And if that was not going to work, they would have to go back to the lake. We would have to hand evacuate. Frankly, I think if we'd had that delay again, I think we would have been encroaching on that kind of hour she had left or two hours where she just simply had to get fluids into her and, and get definitive care. Let me backtrack a little bit. One of my biggest frustrations is a uh, somebody who has some professional background, but now is just an amateur hiker, hunter. Uh, people think they can go in the wilderness with a cell phone, call a helicopter, and five minutes later, 10 minutes later, you know, super paramedic comes clattering in on a helo to save the day. Well, these things may happen, but they take time, and you're not gonna get out of the wilderness on a cell phone a lot of the time. And even when you do get a helicopter, for us, it was, I think, almost 45 minutes from dispatch to arrival. And then they have to fly the area, and that took almost 20 minutes to assess the situation in this Colorado Canyon and make the decision that they would land the medics away from the incident site and have them walk over to us. So the reality is things move painfully slowly, even in an ideal situation. And this was darn near ideal in terms of having communication with the emergency rescue folks within minutes and getting a helo dispatched within minutes. And that's one of my biggest takeaways from this is you're fighting a monster of time. You better have the device with you to call for help. And ideally you can give them information about how critical the patient is so that they kind of pull out all the stops and get you help. So let me tell you, Gary, I'm, I'm one of those people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was a trained search and rescue professional, and I, I thought I thought I was fine with just a, a radio, checking in with uh, uh, National Park Services, and then venturing out into the wilderness and staying in a snow, uh, snow hole for some time. And yeah, I mean, like the possibility of, of getting lost and relying on these type of services and not being able to... Uh, not being able to contact them you with the right equipment Adrian, was a reality. Then you had uh, some freezing, shall we put And it, it's a terrifying moment. I spent a fair amount of time in the outback. There have been a few times I was thinking I might spend an unintended night. I had kind of the obvious experience years ago. I ran out of water in the bottom of the Grand Canyon at about 110 degree temperature. And I guarantee you, I will never run out of water. When you get to the point, you're almost comatose from dehydration and finally collapse under a bush and wait for nightfalls. Uh, back to Phantom Ranch was about 10 miles away. It was not a pleasant, or excuse me, five miles away from where we were. Uh, not a pleasant moment, and that was much more mild than I think you faced. So again, preparedness is the key. Um, 
I think the other thing, and, and I'm sure you faced this because you were a, a very serious rescuer in the line of work you were in with the Navy, just the mental preparation or the ability to shift gears from average everyday nice day with the family to trying to manage a life or death emergency. You have to be very intentional, very focused. And as I played the tapes again on this one, I thought again and again, I wish I'd been just a little bit more aggressive in evaluating the patient. Um, and yet when I think about it, well, that probably would have saved two minutes uh, delay in, in pushing the button, so to speak, because we stood there for a minute or two and conversed with her to try and assess things. But that is another part of this and uh, of being prepared is just uh, the will to act. Of the dozen or so people that came by, the vast majority, uh, we were asking them if they'd help with the ground evacuation if that became necessary. And uh, most of them said yes. There were a couple that frankly just kind of acted like we were a bunch of jerks running their hike, which didn't make me feel too good about those people, but they went on their way and stayed away from us. And that was good. Uh, but I was very pleased with the response of the others. We were also fortunate to have a park ranger from Mesa Verde uh, National Monument come by who was a law enforcement officer and EMT certified, and he was a, a good stabilizing influence on the scene. So sometimes you get a little help that you weren't really expecting. Yeah, that, that sounds extremely, you know, damn near uh, ideal situation. I, I don't see a lot of hikers really presenting some type of medical emergency experience. It's not that they, you should learn all of this stuff, but at least have a, a knowledge base. I, I kind of compare it to going to a pool. So you would go to a pool with the no lifeguard, and then the pool has certain instructions for if an emergency were to arise. Call 911, begin CPR, and even a couple of steps for initiating that CPR. I, I kind of think of that as national parks, placing something at the beginning of a trailhead, certain ideas in your mind that you should take before you uh, before you leave any type of civilized area. You know, just, just something to get the, I guess, the focus on you are out there with no help if if you don't have a uh, right. uh, device to contact anyone, and it's really, you know, it's really dependent on on you or you know the next hiker Absolutely. that has I, those I types think of the prior incident up there is very good illustration of what you're talking about. I talked to the captain of search and rescue once I got home. He gave me a ring to actually thank me for pushing the button. And we chatted a while, and oddly enough, the first year we hiked up there three years ago, we bumped into a gentleman carrying two packs down the hill and chatted with him. His girlfriend sustained multiple fractures, including an open femur fracture up on Mount Wilson, which is one of the two 14ers in that basin. He had to climb to the top of Mount Wilson to get cell phone contact, and the SAR captain told me later he wound up doing that three times. It took them between eight and nine hours to evacuate that lady uh, by air, largely because of that communication issue. She was only, as the crow flies, probably less than a mile and a half from where we had our incident. Uh, if he'd had a, a Garmin or, or PLB and able to trigger that with satellite coverage, 
I probably would have shaved six, at least six hours off of that, given the circumstance. You know, two evacuations in the same basin, two years apart. One, you had passerby with a satellite beacon, and it happens in three hours, and the other one, you go nine hours. And if you can imagine laying there for eight plus hours with an open femur fracture, uh, that poor woman must have been in just agony for those hours. The other thing that I'd, I'd heartily commend to your listeners, um, there's a course called the Wilderness First Responder. It's out there, and there's various ways you can get it, uh, either through an organization or you can just go self-pay, and I don't know what the fee is now, but it's not outrageous. And it basically takes the guts of your basic EMT course, focuses on wilderness-type emergencies, and gives you some Really, the most you're ever going to be able to do with your bare hands and the outback to deal with either traumatic or medical uh, situations. The other thing, kind of going back to mental preparedness, uh, I spent just shy about a dozen years as a licensed DMT uh, back in the mid-80s and 90s. And one thing I learned actually with my very first CPR thing is what you anticipate is not what happens. So when I got my CPR certification and all that and went off to be an EMT, I'm thinking, you know, whenever I do CPR for the first time, it'll be some old guy like me having a cardiac arrest and overweight and lying there in his bedroom door or something was a scenario I envisioned. My first CPR effort was actually on a 10-year-old boy who had been T-boned by a car on a backcountry road. And one of the things that surprised me about EMT work was how often you did CPR for traumatic injury situation, not just the classic middle-aged heart attack. So again, we're out there bebopping along, and I wouldn't have been terribly surprised to bump into a climber with a broken arm, or somebody cut themselves with their, you know, skinny knife or whatever. Uh, you know, having a young lady with an unknown medical condition who is busy tanking on you. By the time we loaded her up, she was pretty near totally non-responsive verbally. Just not what you expected, so you kind of need to do a lot of mental adjustments quickly. And I think you probably had the same experience I did, where when you get into these things, you need to kind of force yourself to step back, check yourself, and make sure you haven't started down a rabbit trail with your evaluation. And it's not like you're second-guessing everything. But it usually helps to just take a deep breath, step back, kind of blink your eyes a couple times and think, okay, have I evaluated all these signs and symptoms the right way? Am I doing the best I can? Is there anything else I can do? Give yourself a little reassessment break every 10 minutes or so and and make sure you feel you're still on the, the right track. Absolutely. I know when I was being trained for my search and rescue program, what they teach you is these type of skill sets that you need to memorize. And and one of them is called operational risk management. Probably hear that and kind of think of uh, a business type scenario where it is stepping back and assessing and reassessing situations so that you're constantly seeing things from a risk perspective of is the benefit going to outweigh the risk? Should I do this? And what are all of the externalities that exactly really one of the affect, other lessons I uh, learned my decision? EMT is don't work with the guy who runs from the ambulance to the station, the guy who 
leaps out of the back and is in a big hurry to get to the side of the injured person because that person is not sizing up the accidents. Uh, you want somebody who steps out of the ambulance, kind of scans and walks quickly to the accident scene, sizing up as you go. And I guess it, it's just one of the things I keep coming back to. And again, um, you know, you're not walking out in an area where you've got a hospital five or 10 minutes away. Matter of fact, when I worked in New Mexico, our hospital was 105 miles away from the ambulance. Yeah, so, you know, six, eight, 10, 12 hour ambulance run was not unusual. And we did not have a helicopter available. We would have to drive 45 miles north of our town to meet the one helicopter that almost could make it to our town from Albuquerque, which was the nearest level one trauma center. But then I'm getting off on war stories. Uh, I, I think is just the everyday hiker or hunter in the backcountry. Just kind of go through a little mental exercise. That's another thing I found useful over the years. Of, you know, I'm taking off with my daughters for several days in the wilderness and a couple of grandsons. And we know the area. We've been up there before. We know the easy trails, the hard trails. We've been training. We're in pretty good shape. We know, you know, we know we got this routine down. I think just pausing and something I did not do this trip that I darn well do will do the next trip is pause and think, okay, what am I going to do if I have an emergency? Am I going to be mentally prepared? Have I got my emergency gear with me? Have I tweaked my little first aid kit the way I want it to be to, uh, to deal with what I'm likely to encounter? Just a little mental preparation that way can help you adjust quickly because it, it really was a moment when, you know, I'm many, many years away from my day-to-day -day EMT work. And when my daughter said that, you know, these people need an SOS and she kind of stepped out of the way and I saw this woman staggering, uh, barely erect. Uh, it's just a moment as you're rapidly clashing mental gears and trying to get into this emergency mode. And again, for the average everyday hiker, you're not thinking that. Uh, a little mental preparation can go a long way. The other thing that was extremely helpful in that was all the people involved. We had a young teacher uh, from a little private school in Colorado. We had the park ranger who came by. My one daughter stayed with us while the other daughter took the grandkids down the trail. Uh, everybody stayed calm. And that's, again, I, I suspect in your own experience, you've had the person who insists on flipping out. And the way I've always looked at emergencies is by the time the people with lights and sirens show up, the emergency has been over a long time. All that's left is, is transporting the patient as safely and quickly as you can to definitive care where they can actually solve the problem. And of course, doing what you can to stabilize the patient. But um, you know, acting like you're in an absolute crisis constantly and everybody has to scream and shout, not helpful. And my hat's really off to the boyfriend who just held it together beautifully through three really long hours. Uh, that's staying calm and trying to keep some perspective while urgently trying to get that person out of there, I think is another kind of tip I'd want to pass on to the other average hikers out. <laughs> oh my goodness oh yes yes uh i don't know if you heard my first one but we were talking to a a, a good friend of mine 
His name is uh, Kyle O'Brien, and he did a uh, he, he did a podcast on really like the process in which he's activated as a overland search and rescue naval. Yeah, I saw asset. the other day the Coast Guard rescued a couple of firefighters over in California, which is not something the Coast Guard does. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, actually kind of leads to another thought or one of the takeaway points I made on my Facebook post. That is that everybody loves helicopters. They're exciting. They're dramatic. And I always tell people when I was practicing law that lawyers are like helicopters. They're dramatic. They thrash the air. They blow a large amount of hot air. But if they're not carrying something useful with them, they're just a lot of hot air making a lot of noise. And, and helicopters are huge distractions. If you are at an emergency scene where one is coming in, you really have to be heads up. Uh, those things can and will fail. Uh, the Arizona DPS lost one of their air medics a couple, three years ago from a rotor strike. And that was a guy who was very experienced and still managed to unfortunately be killed by his own helicopter. So. Don't get distracted by the helo. There will be a professional coming off the, the helicopter to instruct you if you're assisting. And you darn well better listen to what he says. Uh, some real basics. You want to get rid of anything that's going to blow around. So secure your hats and scars and those kind of things. If you have time, go around the area you anticipate them to land in and get rid of small branches and stuff. The problem is that stuff can be blown up and ingested into the helicopters intake and the other thing is if you are anywhere near that dang helicopter it is going to be a noisy booger you got jet intake screaming you got jet exhaust howling you've got the rotors typically flopping because they probably won't shut down unless they're in a very secure area um you just need your head screwed on pretty tight and let other people deal with the picture taken and video you need to focus on whatever the crewman's telling you to do uh, the other thing, if you happen to just be watching and you're nearby, be ready to hit the ground. Uh, a helicopter that does fail and crashes uh, creates a, a horrendous amount of flying debris and you will not have time to react. I actually had a, well, it's a long story, but we were blowing up danger trees in Oregon and we got a little bit um, maybe exuberant <laughs> on the charge on one tree and a big chunk of it came flying in my vehicle. And it, it hit my vehicle before I had time to react, and I was a good 200 yards away from that tree. Uh, so it's amazing how fast flying debris can come at you. So be very cautious, be very respectful, and remember that the job at that point is to get that victim onto the helicopter and get them safely out of there. Don't get too distracted by all the glory of the helicopter landing. I don't, you probably, you might have known this already, but the... Uh... So typically when a helicopter goes up to altitude, so operating at a at a higher barometric altitude than their engines are used to operating. And the weight also has a huge impact on the engines are gonna do. So when these helicopters are up really high, they're they're operating a performance. And so that that makes them also a danger to Absolutely. Actually my other twin daughter who taken the grandkids down to a safe area was near where the helo landed the first time landed up by the lake as is not unusual they shut the helo down while the emts walked over to our location so she went over and chatted with the pilot for 
few minutes. And the first thing she asked was, you know, how was that landing? And he said, you know, it's just a little bit sketchy uh, at this altitude. He had a, it was a Bell Long Ranger. Um, and it, yeah, the, the air is thin. They're often operating at the extremes that are enveloped and there's not a lot of margin. The other thing too, and, and one of my, replaying the tapes. I should have thought of this and I didn't because I could have got an accurate weight for, on her from her uh, before she ceased to be verbally responsive and we had to guess her weight or her boyfriend did, which is critical because one of the things the helicopter crew will do is figure out the weight capacity. And again, I'm sure you had a few incidents in the past. Uh, you get somebody who's a 250-pound, six-foot-six brawny mountaineer you just might be too heavy to get out that day, depending on how hot and how high you are. So that's another little tip for working with helicopters is try to establish the patient's weight, crew to do their, what they call the manifest loading calculations. Such an incredible journey and such an amazing story. Gary, thank you. Those people are so fortunate to... To have had you respond to them. You Any, bet, anything the only other thing I would add is tremendous appreciation for the Lawrence County Search and Rescue. Awful comforting to have that kind of professional help, literally the push of a button. So carry your satellite device, think through things before you go. And if that moment comes, don't hesitate. Get Go on and do the very best you can. It's a pretty good feeling when it turns out like this. Uh, Pretty sweet feeling. That was Gary McCaleb, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This show is brought to you by Alert 30. Out of Music by Joe Kim Carr. I'm Adrian Moreno, and you were listening to the Stay Alive Podcast.